Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 17. I'm your host, Jason Hill. And I know a kid in high school who could smoke cigarettes through his eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. And what have you done to make the world a better place? Hmm? Tonight's episode is not really horror. Well, bits of it are. Mostly the bloody bits, but hey... This likely isn't your first trek up the old horror hill, so you should probably be used to this. And if you're not, then... Oh, I am so, so sorry. 
Do you want to go lie down for a little bit? I fluffed the pillow for you. Oh, baby, don't be upset. It's okay to cry. Even I cry sometimes. Actually, I cry quite a bit for a grown man. But I read in women's health that emotional accessibility is very sexually appealing. Am I right, girls? And if that is your thing, then let me tell you, ladies. I can cry all night. I am inconsolable, baby. Wah. All right, enough tomfoolery. The show must go on. This little story, one I've been looking forward to recording for a long long time comes from the finest novelist I have ever had the pleasure of working with the assaulter of ignoble geese the purveyor of parcels most righteous the one and only Jeff Sturdivant shall we You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now... Allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado... From author Jeff Sturdivant, I give you anything for my bubbler. Saul ran the red light at the intersection of Maine and Marigold and tore down the road to Marigold Court. He'd outstayed his welcome at the poker game, and since the Dominicans knew where he lived, he'd outstayed his welcome at his own apartment. That is, unless he wanted to be there when they showed up with their switchblades, turning the place upside down looking for their 3,000 bucks. A motel was out of the question, too. He needed money for a room, and he'd left every cent on the green felt. So much money, he could barely believe it was gone. Just like that. He could barely believe it when Eyeball had reached into his jacket and handed him the brick of bills in the first place. His face must have looked like a winning slot machine. It was like every bright light and ringing bell of Vegas went off in his skull at once. Eyeball must have seen the cherries in his eyes. Those gangsters had a knack for judging character. So, he must have known it was a bad move. Even a part of Soul knew it was a bad move. But, far be it from him to turn down cash. And, of course, the rest was history. The money was history. The apartment was history. Now Saul needed a place to squat and lick his wounds for a while. He had a few buddies here and there, but none came to mind who owed him a favor. It was he who owed most of them favors. In fact, the more he thought about it, 
He was into just about everyone he knew for a few bucks. No one was going to take him in, especially with the mob nipping at his heels. There was only one place he could go. One place where he was always welcome, no matter what. His mom's house. They checked his watch. 5.15 a.m. The only sign of life was the light in his mom's kitchen, the sole glow in the neighborhood. Mom was up early, as always, up and toasting a bagel. The undercarriage of the old Mercury Cougar bottomed out on the driveway, and he knew she would soon be peeking through the blinds to investigate. Until he had the money for a new suspension, or a new car altogether, it would be impossible to make a discreet arrival. The curtains parted, and the poofy silhouette of Edna Edelbaum rose in the window. He didn't need to see her face to sense the excitement in her bobbing bouffant. Saul sighed. He was in no mood for the onslaught to come, but considering the circumstances, it was a fair trade for sanctuary. The curtain shut, and before he could even get out of the car, Edna Edelbaum's reception shattered the calm of the early morning. Angel boy, darling! Saul closed the car door and smoothed down his jacket. His shirt was still tacky with sweat. Sweat, and who knows what else. Hi, Ma. She shuffled out in her slippers to embrace him in the middle of the driveway like a carnivorous beetle. I had a feeling you'd come to visit. Maybe I dreamt it, I don't remember. Why so early, though? Are you hungry? I just need a shower, Ma. Of course, you take a nice shower. Are you hungry? I have leftovers. I can make you an omelet. You smell like smoke. Have you been smoking? Don't break my heart. You know Uncle Merrill has emphysema. It wasn't me. It was the guys I was with. You're covered in schmutz. Why don't you take a nice shower? I will make you something to nosh on. I'm not hungry, Ma. Just a shower and some sleep, all right? Have you been eating? Look at you. You're all schmutzed. Are you sure you weren't smoking? Yeah, I was just hanging out with some friends. Oi, not that finny boy, I hope. Oh, he's a real no-good Nick. That was high school, Ma. I haven't seen Finny for 15 years. She was straightening the lapels of his jacket. Finny's mother was always worried sick with that boy. He was nothing like my boy. Oh, I am so glad you came to visit. She rubbed his bristly cheeks. Saul glanced up and down the street. He didn't think he'd been followed, but you never could be too careful. Especially with the Dominicans. At least the Wops would think it over before they stabbed you. The Dominicans? Well, they just stab you. Let's go inside, Ma. Let's go inside, honey. She went after his cheeks again. Oh, you know what I have? Liverwurst. Your favorite. Liverwurst? I've, I hate liverwurst. Can we just please go inside? I could have sworn you love... You know what? That was your brother. He was backing up to the front door at this point. Let's talk about it inside, eh? Oh, my poor Bubba, you must be starving. Let's go inside. I'll make you a bagel. After some time, Saul managed to escape the bathroom. He turned on the shower and stood looking in the mirror. His face was smeared with dirt where he'd fallen in the alley after dropping from the fire escape. With his shirt off, he saw his elbows and left shoulder were scratched up too. Eh, could have been worse. It should have been worse. With the lousy luck he'd had at the table, Slippery Saul had lived up to his nickname yet again, hitting the bricks before the bricks hit him. Like a cat. 
How many lives you got, slippery soul? Couple, maybe? Yeah, I got a couple left in me. Angel boy, darling! It was Mom, shouting from behind the bathroom door. I brought you a towel, Bubbola. There's towels in here, Ma. Open the door, honey, I have a nice towel. The one in here is fine. There was no reply, but Saul knew instinctively she was still standing there. They waited patiently for her third attempt, as there would be three attempts. And then she would finally... It's your favorite towel from when you were a... I am fine. I already have a goddamn towel. He waited until he heard her shuffle away and he got to the shower. The water was hot and the steam like a veil to hide him from his problems. He wondered what his apartment would look like by the time he could go back. He played a kind of hopeful movie in his head, one where both the Specs and the Ginzo showed up looking for him at the same time and fought it out right there in his apartment. Eyeball kicks in the door, and there's Ramos. Ramos, in true Dominican fashion, goes ahead and plunges a knife in Eyeball's neck. No, he decided. He plunges it in his one good eye. Yes, all right. Then Eyeball pulls a gun and blasts Ramos in the sternum. Then they both lie there, dying, lamenting all that could have been and all that never was. And of course, about how they never caught up to Slippery Saw. But it doesn't matter anymore, because both of them are worm food. The Gambinos forget about Saul and go after the Dominicans for retaliation. Saul grows a mustache and moves to Florida. Off the hook. On to bigger and better things. Yeah, that's rich, he muttered. I'll leave the towel by the door, honey. That's what I'll do, Okay. It'll be right outside the door. I'm going to go make you a nice bagel now. Goodbye. Two. The next day, Saul went out for some groceries and Edna stood in the kitchen, admiring her new Ginsu bagel knife. She tried it on a frozen bagel and you wouldn't believe it, but it cut right through with the lightest nudge. What a delightful device, she thought. The Chinamen usually made such shabby knickknacks, but with their samurai swords and throwing stars and all that, well, they made just a terrific bagel knife. She decided she'd keep an eye on the television for a Ginsu cream cheese schmearer. But wait, do Chinamen eat cream cheese? Hmm. A car pulled in front of the house around 1 p.m., and she hurried to the blinds to see if it was Saul back from the store. He'd be amazed at what a great gadget this Ginsu knife was, and a bargain to boot. Could you believe it? Chinamen usually made such shabby things, and... Wow, what a wonderful bagel knife they had made. But it wasn't Saul's car. It was a black Volvo. Feh, she said. But just as she was about to turn back to the cutting board, two sharply dressed gentlemen got out of the car. She thought she'd wait a minute to see what they were up to. But what was this? They were walking across her lawn. Edna panicked. She was still in her curlers and nightgown. What would she do if they came to the door? Before she could decide, they were knocking. Of course, she said. She checked herself in the hallway mirror to make sure she wasn't too disheveled and peeked out the peephole. And it was them all right. And they didn't look like they were leaving a door tag. She sighed and opened the door. Edelbaum? asked the young fellow. Yes? Edna said. 
The fellow's clothes were so spiffy. Saul never dressed up like that. She wished Saul would dress up sometime, at least for a nice picture. What a spiffy outfit, Edna said. Are you boys Jewish? The man seemed taken aback for a moment, then smiled tentatively. Is, uh, Saul here, ma'am? Saul will be back soon. Just come on in. I'll have coffee ready in just a minute. The two looked at each other for a moment. Then the second fellow took off his sunglasses. Listen, lady, I'll cut to the chase. Our boss sent us to collect on a loan made the saw. And you know what? He's late. We need payment. What is going to be consequences? A loan? For what? Are you gentlemen from the bank? Well, let's just say it's a private bank. Anywho, $5,000 plus $500 a day, late fee makes 6000 by tomorrow. Cash. You go ahead and let Saul know. We'll be back in 24 hours to collect. Six thousand? For a moment, she thought she'd plots. Gavot? What in the world did Saul need six thousand dollars for? Well, I don't know him personally, Mrs. Edelbaum. That's none of my business. But I can tell you, I have seen him at quite a few card tables. In any case, my associate and I will be back tomorrow. And uh, if we leave without the money, well, let's just say my boss imposes a very severe late penalty. My God, I can't believe it. Are you, are you two from the, the mafia? The man grinned. There's no such thing as the mafia, Mrs. Edelbaum. Have a nice day now. We'll see you tomorrow. The men got back into the Volvo and drove away. Edna stood stunned in the doorway, the smell of her burnt bagel not even occurring to her. She thought about what the man had said. Always good-natured, Edna had tried her best to ignore all the signs over the years. The sleazy friends, the smelling like cigarettes, the pocketfuls of crumpled lottery tickets, the sporadic trips to Atlantic City, the constantly needing a few dollars for this and that. Ugh... They always needed money for something. Always in a hurry. Always had big ideas. Always had a lock on something. He always, always saw he was such a schlamazzle. And you know what? I'm a schlamazzle too. Three. Saul never came home that day. He arrived the following morning, his head pounding his eyes bloodshot, and six crumpled dollars left in his pocket. Another losing night at some little dive joint where nobody knew him. His mother's car was gone. The smell of potpourri and an over-toasted bagel hung in the air. He tossed his smoky jacket at the kitchen table, and that's when he saw the note. Saul, I've gone to the credit union to get that six thousand dollars you owe those nasty men. They said if we don't have it by the day... They'll do something bad. I swear, I thought I'd drop dead right there on the doorstep. How could you do this to your old mother? Your poor old mother. But I'll never let them hurt my little angel boy, so don't you worry. Help yourself to a bagel. Make sure you try the new Ginsu bagel knife in the silverware drawer. I got it on sale from the television. Cream cheese in the fridge. Mom. Saul stepped back from the table, breathing heavily. 
He thought he'd be safe here for at least a week or two, enough time to get back on his feet. But they tracked him down in a matter of hours. My damned luck, he growled, and looked at his watch. 9.30 a.m. He stood there thinking for a minute. Then he stomped his foot and put his smelling jacket back on and went back out to his car. Edna stood outside the bank. It opened at 10 and she wanted to be the first one inside so she wouldn't have to wait to talk to a loan officer. A group of colored gentlemen walked by and she clutched her purse to her chest. I saw, she said. How could you do this to your poor mother? A car pulled up and jammed on the brakes and she saw it was Saul. Finally, Saul had showed up. She donned her most guilt-provoking countenance. I knew it, and I ignored it all this time. You have a problem, Saul. I should have said something a long time ago. Just look at you. You're all schmutzy. Take it easy, Ma. Don't make a scene. How could you do this to your poor old mother? Listen, Ma, I'm really sorry. I never meant for you to get involved in any of this. I will never let them hurt my angel boy. We'll give them the money and they'll leave you alone. But no more of this nonsense, Saul. Oh, you could have been a doctor. Or a lawyer, Bubby. Like your Uncle Merrill. I learned my lesson, Ma. No more gambling. But there's got to be some other way. I can't just let you take out a loan. I've made up my mind. I am not letting those men hurt my Bubby. You should have seen him, Saul. They were menacing. I thought I'd faint right there on the doorstep. Saul rubbed his neck the way he always did when he was nervous. This is what everyone meant when they talked about hitting bottom. He'd heard all the stories from the degenerates in the meetings he'd tried going to. Ironically, it was all of those stories that knocked him back off the wagon. They all seemed so... awful. So much more severe than anything that had happened to him. Sure, he'd been roughed up a couple times. Sure, he was usually broke. But he'd never hit bottom the way all those other schmucks had. Losing houses, ruining marriages, emptying college funds. That kind of stuff is what it took to get clean for good. To really hit your lowest low. Well, this was it. They dragged his own mother into it. And if she knew the whole truth, she'd probably have a heart attack. He owed a lot more than 6000 bucks to the Gambinos. And now that they knew where he was, they'd be back to collect again next week. And the week after that. And the week after that. And so on. All right, Ma, just this time. But listen, I'll find a way to pay you back. All right? I promise. Oh, I know you will, Edna said. But Saul knew she didn't mean it. He'd never been able to pay her back before. How was he supposed to do it now? They left the bank an hour later with $6,000 at an interest rate not much better than a mob loan. Following her back to her house, wallowing in the guilt and the hopelessness of it all, he only found solace in the idea that he'd finally hit his bottom. Once he found a way to get out of this mess, he could finally clean up his act. Maybe he could go back to school after all. He could be a doctor. Or a lawyer. Just like Uncle Merle. God, get me through this mess and I will never forget it. I swear, I have hit bottom, God. 
How could I do this to my poor old ma? He could see his mother's silhouette through her rearview window as they went, gesticulating and shaking her head. He knew what she was doing, privately airing her grievances. She was so disappointed in her bubby. He knew she was. She should be. God, how am I going to make this go away? Please, show me something. Show me the answer and I'll do it. I swear. Then, like a flash of lightning, he had an idea. The light turned green and his mom pulled away, but Saul just sat there a second until the car behind him started honking. He gritted his teeth, put on his signal, and turned right. It must be the right move. God had heard his prayer and given him an idea. Not the idea he'd expected, but an idea nevertheless. And Saul knew exactly what he had to do. 4. Sal, a.k.a. Sammy the Bull Gravano, stood at the phone booth by the subway station, squinting against the cold mist. Not quite rain, just wet enough to be a pain in the ass. He checked his watch. The phone would ring soon. It would be John Gotti and whatever big news he had that couldn't wait until tomorrow morning. He double-checked the street sign to make sure he was at the right corner. He was. Restively, he scratched his balls. The phone rang. Ravano slid into the booth and picked it up. Yeah. Hey! Do you happen to have Prince Albert in a can? This very funny boss. <laughs> Listen, we're getting rid of the old man. Misapproved? Well, nobody approved it. Nobody needs to. The prick doesn't even show his face at Delacroix's wake. He sanctioned his own hit, if you ask me. Who's going to disagree with that? Not me. It was reason enough when we waxed you better. Say the word. I'm in. It's happening. Soon. And with him out of the way, you know who's at the helm, don't you? Yeah, you can bet on it. And you know who's going to be a big capo, don't you? Gravano looked up and down the street. He swirled his toe on the floor of the booth. Um, me? That's right, Sammy the Bull. Gravano stifled a cough. What, uh, <clears throat> what about his, uh, his wake? He said. His wake? What do you mean? You gonna show up at Castellano's wake after we do him? Gotti paused. I never thought of that. Seems a little disingenuous, huh? Oh, a little. Hmm. I'll tell you what. You go first, then call me, and let me know how the food is. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, 
You can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Five. Saul pulled into the driveway two hours after they left the bank. Edna ran to the window to make sure it was him, then ran out the front door and seized him by his shoulders. Good gracious, Saul, where were you? I thought those men had gotten you. Just look at me, Saul. She embraced him. How could you do this to your poor old mother? Saul looked oddly pale. I don't want to talk about it, he said. Edna watched him walk past her and limp up to the doorstep. She remembered back when Saul was a baby. He was always cranky around midday. That's when she used to put him in his crib for a nap. Maybe that was it. Maybe he just needed a nap. Saul, honey, maybe you should have a nap. A nap? What? You seem tired, that's all. A little cranky. You might feel better if you took a little... Ma! Saul snapped. I... I lost the money. The money? It's in your pocket, honey. I saw you put it in your... No, Ma, I mean... I lost it. I bet it on the horses. I'm sorry, Ma. I thought I had a lock. I really thought I had it. Her kneecap seemed to turn to matzo balls, and her legs began to wobble. I'm sore. My legs. I think we're going to faint. Oh, no, Ma. Saul steadied her and helped her inside. He walked her over to the kitchen table and lowered her down onto a chair. How could you be such a... such a schlamazzle? How could my own son be such a stupid Nick schlamazzle? She swatted at his forearm. Saul feigned agony. It was going to pay ten to one, Ma. I thought I had it this time. I've had it this time, she snapped. What are we going to do when those men come back? They said if we didn't have the money, they would be very, very angry. I'll handle them, Ma. I'll take care of it. I know how to handle these people. Oh, you're so delicate, Saul. You've always been delicate. What if they hurt you? They won't hurt me, Ma. These guys are all talk. It's what they do. Just you leave it to me. I am not delicate. You could have been a doctor, Saul. Or a lawyer like your Uncle Merrill. Instead, you're a schlamazel. She swatted him again. Uh, listen, Ma... He pulled out another chair and sat, rubbing his eyes with the heels of his hands. It's not just the 6,000 the Gambinos are after. The Gambinos? The 6,000 is just the first payment. I, um... <clears throat> I, uh... I owe him 60. What? She shot up out of her chair. Oi, voy, I'm gonna faint! No, no, just, just sit down, Ma. How could you do this? I give you life, and you give me what? Agony! Ma, sit down, please. Clutching her heart, she lowered herself back into her chair. She checked the clock on the wall. The men are coming in an hour. What am I going to tell them, honey? You're not telling them anything, Ma. Just go into the bedroom and wait. Watch your programs. When they leave, I will come get you. All right? I won't let them hurt my bubby. I will never let those no-goodniks hurt my bubbler. The no-goodniks arrived as promised. Saul stood in the kitchen, 
smoothing his clothes and going over his lines. Saul was a smooth talker, he knew that. Even back in his car selling days, he could talk his way around questions, talk his way out of trouble. But this was no car, and these were no rubes. There was a lot more at stake now than a used car commission. A hard knock on the door. Saul waited a moment, just long enough, so he wouldn't seem either over-eager or scared to death, which, indeed, he was both. He checked his looks in the mirror, smoothed back his hair, took a deep breath, and opened the door. He recognized the two men, a couple of eyeballs, street toughs, Mike and Ralphie, mafia wannabes that would never be more than loose associates, but were too dumb to know it. Eyeball kept them hooked, and it kept them hungry. Gentlemen, Saul said, it's a pleasure to see you. Cut this shit, Saul. Just fork it over so we can get out of here, eh? Saul stepped outside and closed the door behind him. Where's Ma? asked Ralphie. Ma? She's, uh, she's out at the grocery store. But listen, I'm glad you two are here because I happen to have an extremely lucrative business venture I'd like to share with you. Big money we're talking about here. Oh, we've heard it all before, Mike said. Can't a small talk. You got the cash or not? Saul stifled a swallow. There was a short but uncomfortable pause. Ralphie nodded. He took off his sunglasses and folded them into his breast pocket. Uh, maybe we came off too strong, he said. Let's start over. You going to invite us in for a drink or what? Oh, we could just talk out here, Saul said. What, you going to pitch us this lucrative idea of yours out here in the cold? Mike said. Come on. Where are your manners? Saul cleared his throat. I, uh, I, I suppose. Without breaking eye contact, he opened the door and stepped aside. The men went in. In the kitchen, Saul went to fetch two glasses from the cupboard. So tell us about this idea, Edelbaum, Mike said. I gotta say, I'm intrigued. Sure, said Saul. Here's the thing. I got a lock on this... The wind went right out of him. Saul felt his feet lift off the linoleum, and the next thing he knew, his face and right hand were squashed onto the kitchen table. The chair skidded backwards against the sink. Before he could protest, he felt the cold bite of steel just above the knuckle of his little finger. His eyes slowly focused on a gleaming piece of metal. A chisel. The boss doesn't appreciate you beating around the bush. Hand over the envelope or you will be doing it with one less finger tomorrow. Guys, I can get you more than what you're asking, I promise. I'm just a little, a little short right now, that's all. But I've got this, this inside information. I've got... A hollow clunk and crash of glass. What the fuck? Said Mike. The pressure on Saul's face and arms abated. The room filled with the fruity astringent smell Saul recognized immediately. Manischewitz. Broken glass rained down on the linoleum. You will never hurt my bubbler, said Edna, and Ralphie crashed heavily onto the floor. You dumb bitch! Mike turned on Edna, wielding the chisel. Damn it, Ma! Reflexively, Saul dove onto Mike's back. He remembered jumping onto his father's back as a young boy. The effect was similarly ineffectual and he didn't have a chance in hell. 
Mike shook him off like a bug. Saul sailed into the kitchen cabinets and landed in a heap, salt and pepper shakers and sconces teetering off their perches and onto the counter and floor. The world was spinning. His eyes clamped tightly against the pain in his head and lower back. He was helpless, too weak to protect his own mom. I will never let you hurt my angel. Disconnectedly, Saul heard next what might have been an axe thunking into a wet, rotten tree stump, followed by a clang. Get a grip, Saul. He forced his eyes open. There was Mike. He had dropped the chisel. He appeared to have antlers. His arms were flailing in some strange interpretive dance. Then he saw the antlers were not antlers, but the branches of a menorah lodged in his skull. Still dazed, he pictured a lit candle on each one. Bobby, are you all right? Mike's feet treadmilled in the puddle of Manischewitz, then went out from under him, and he sprawled face first into the wine and glass. More trinkets fell into the sink. A baby picture of Saul fell from the wall into the trash can. Bubby, say something. That's when he saw his mother standing there. Her face was wrought with terror. Not terror of the gangsters laid out on the kitchen floor, but terror that he had been maimed. Saul, say something. Do you know where you are? Do you know what year it is? Who's the president? I'm all right, Ma. Oh, thank God. I thought you bumped your little head. I did, but I'm all right. Just give me a... Ralphie, the one Edna had hit with the Manischewitz bottle, had begun to stir. He wasn't conscious yet, but it looked like he was waking up. Ma, we gotta get out of here, quick. How dare you assault my bubbler? Mrs. Edelbaum had other plans. She seized the Ginsu knife from the butcher's block and dove on top of Ralphie like a kamikaze pilot. She started sawing. She sawed and sawed and sawed, snapping through meat and gristle. Fountains of blood cascaded onto the floor. The blade hit bone. His head flopped left and right as she sawed, like he was repeatedly looking both ways before crossing the street. Finally, it looked left. Then... And just lay there at her knee. She had sawed his head off. Edna looked at the head for a moment, then stared at the bagel knife with a kind of reverie. She heard in her mind the hammer and anvil of the forge, the great red heat of the glowing coals, the pudgy-faced Chinaman, long hair drawn back in those samurai coiffures, hammering the steel, folding it over, hammering again the legendary blades of the samurai Chinaman. As she held the bagel knife, slathered in gore, she too felt the thousands of years of culture and tradition and power. Heavens to Betsy, she said. Did you see that, Saul? I just cut the man's whole head right off. Saul? Saul was staring at the severed head. Bubala? You look pale. Something occurred to her suddenly. The man she'd brained with the menorah looked dead. But what if he wasn't? What if he got up again and tried to hurt Saul? Edna got to her feet and approached the second man. Ma, wait. 
Oh, come on, Ma, take it easy. Nobody's gonna hurt my bubby. Oh, no, Ma. This time, she started at the back of the neck. When she got through the bony parts, the rest was a piece of cake. Another body's worth of blood poured into the expanding red pool filling the kitchen floor. Her dress was soaked up to the waist. She would likely have to take it to the cleaners. But Saul was safe now, and that was the important thing. She looked lovingly at him. For all the blood on the floor, there seemed to be none left in his face. Saul, can you believe this knife? I got it from the television. It took the both of them two hours to mop up all the blood after they'd gotten the bodies into the bathtub. Saul didn't know which was worse. The blood or the hours of niggling over his foolish decisions. He should have stuck with school. He could have been a doctor. Hell, maybe a lawyer, like Uncle Merle. But no, he wanted to earn his money the easy way. Only shortcuts for Saul Edelbaum. No hard work or dedication to anything. In fact, he deserved the niggling. How could he have done this to his poor old mother, yada, yada, yada? I get it, Ma. I understand already. Then stop horsing around and hold up that foot. Hoy, my back is killing me. Just let me do it. Give me the knife. I can do it, Bubby. Just hold up that foot. I can do it, Ma. Just let me have it already. The color never quite came back to Saul's face. Not even after Edna forced him to eat a Fig Newton. Not even as they drove the Volvo down the dark path through the Great Swamp later that night. They rolled down nameless dirt roads until a bollard post forced them to stop. They got out and opened the trunk, and Saul lifted out the garbage bags and dropped them on the ground. Each one weighed roughly 7,000 pounds. Edna carried a third bag, containing the men's blood-soaked suits. Dragging them through the leaves and pine needles... One of the bags got caught on a sharp tree stump, and Saul stumbled. Damn it! He yanked it free, ripping the plastic. As they trudged on, a shoe worked its way out of the hole. Then, the whole leg fell out. Saul, honey, you dropped a leg. I know, Ma. Damn it. I'll get it. I got it, I got it! He grabbed it by the shoelace and tried stuffing it back in the bag. After a few tries, he gave up and just dragged it. They continued on. Once Saul caught the smell of the bog, he was sure they'd been walking in the right direction. He remembered the place from when he was a kid. A little legend he and his friends had imagined that whatever fell in the fetid bog water would never be recovered. They wondered what might happen if they lured over one of the school bullies and pushed him in or if one of them would fall in by mistake. It was all about the gamble back then, too, he remembered, swinging over the bog of the tree vines, tossing Frank's pet cat back and forth. Now, he looked at the hairy leg dragging behind his. This guy must have known he was going down, too, one way or another. Everyone in this life ended up in hot water eventually. Some water, it was best to never, ever dip your toe into. When they reached the bog, he swung the leg out into the water and it sunk in the sludge with barely a splash. Only a few sluggish bubbles in the moonlight. Then, he spun around for momentum 
and hurled in the first garbage bag. It landed with a light splash. Your father used to throw the discus, Edna said. You never told me that, said Saul. Boy, oh boy, could he throw the discus. Driving back through Newark, Saul parked the Volvo in a shabby lot, opened the windows, and left the keys in the ignition. The car was like a carcass in a lake of piranha. By the time they got a cab and got back home, the thing would be a different color. Hmm, it's a shame to leave such a fancy car for the you-know-whos, Edna said. Six. Gotti was at his usual breakfast spot, sitting, smoking, and reading the paper. Gravano walked to the door and the two exchanged nods from across the room. Gravano sat down across from him and Gotti smeared his cigarette in the ashtray. Gravano began, So Eyeball sends two of his bullies out to collect on the default account. This was yesterday, and he never hears back from them. So he calls last night, and ain't nobody else to serve from them neither. They just like, poof, disappeared. He lit another cigarette. Did they get the money? Gotti asked. I don't know. No one does. Eyeball can't get a hold of either of them. So who's this guy they went to see? This Jew named Edelbaum. He used to hang out at the card tables a lot. Personally, I wouldn't loan the guy a penny. <laughs> How much did Eyeball loan him? Sixty grand. Oof. I know it. The waitress came by and set a cup of coffee down in front of Gravano. They were quiet until she left. Think they took the cash and split? Gotti asked. Nah, no way. I doubt the guy had the first payment to begin with. What's he loaning the gamblers for, anyway? What's he think they're gonna do? Open up their own casino? I told him that. He goes, Sammy, the guy's a Jew. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, he knew what he was doing, all right, Gotti said. You know who else was a Jew? You remember Schwartz? A guy who owned that pet shop in Jersey City? No, never heard of him. Well, get this. Eyeball loans the guy ten grand to start some trained parrot business. Meanwhile, you know what happened? The guy gets locked up for fucking pigeons. Ha! <laughs> That's rich. Like no one's going to be able to tell the difference between a parrot and a pigeon. No, no, you, you don't get it. I mean, literally, fucking pigeons. Some guy shows up looking for bird food, and there's Schwartz in the back. Fucking a pigeon. Hand to God. Get out of here. How do you fuck a pigeon? Got me. In the ass, I guess. <laughs> Just goes to show. Gotti dragged in his cigarette. <sighs> Hold on. What were we talking about? Seven. Saul sat staring at the bottom of a scotch glass at the Meyer pub, wondering where his next buck was coming from. All he needed was one good score, and he could stop all this nonsense for good. One big nut. But how is he going to get it? Suddenly, a heavy hand landed on his shoulder, 
and the barstools on either side of him were heavy with the presence of large men. Edelbaum, how's tricks? It was Eyeball, the last man on earth he wanted to see. His heart rate immediately doubled. My luck, the streak continues. All right, you? Just having a few drinks after a hard day's work. Happened to notice you here. Hey, a couple of guys went down to see you the other day. No funniest thing, they never came back. You know anything about that? Saul had begun to sweat. They had to smell the fear on him. A couple of guys? Uh, who? Don't be smart, Edelbaum. Oh, you mean Mike and Ralph? Yeah, 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 I paid them what I owed you. Sixty thousand, payment in full. They, uh, I said thank you, and they, they left. Eyeball squinted down at him with his one good eye. He glared at him for an uncomfortably long moment. You're telling me, you gave those two the money? They've got the money, Saul said. Every cent of it. Now where the fuck did you get sixty grand? Saul paused. I I sold a bunch of my father's old war memorabilia. I swore I never would, but I did it. I had to. I wasn't about to be late paying you. That right, Eyeball said. How much did you get for it? Sixty thousand. Exactly sixty thousand. It was worth seventy-five. The guy knew he was getting a bargain. He scooped it right up. That was a laugh, Saul thought. His father's old guns might have been worth a quarter of that, and he would have sold them already if his mother gave him access to them. Who'd you sell it to? Anonymous guy. How'd he pay you? Cash. You're trying to tell me this guy brought you sixty grand in cash. I insisted on it. You deposit the check like that and the IRS is all over you. I'm already losing out on the goods. I don't need to pay taxes on the extra 60. His companion piped in. You forget this guy's a Jew. He knows his shit. Oh, I didn't forget. Hey, listen. I'm not jumping to conclusions here. Say you're telling the truth. Maybe those jerk-offs decided to take the money and run. It could happen. Unlikely, I'd say, but not impossible. He got up from his bar stool. But you gotta understand, Saul. My boss doesn't want to hear about this little loan shocking shit. He's making big business moves. But he still wants his envelope. Eyeball leaned in close. Saul could feel his breath against his cheek. So as I don't want to have to come to him saying some bum is holding out on me for 60 large. He doesn't give a shit. He's either going to want his cut or he's going to want you out of the picture. Get it? Oh, I get it, Saul said. <laughs> Goes without saying. So if that's what happened, we'll find them. I'll hold out on my boss for a few days while we wait and see what happened, but I'm not giving you the free and clear until I have that money in hand. Understood? Understood, 
Saul said. He felt dizzy. He was glad he was sitting down. The two men got up and went to sit at their own table, servers jockeying for position to wait on them. And someone tipped them off that he was here? Was he being followed? Saul finished his drink and slapped a ten on the bar and got up to leave. He gave an amiable nod to Eyeball on his way out. It was tough to read his expression with just the one eye. That he believed the bullshit story. Well, maybe. But Saul didn't think so. 8. Gravano put a dime in the payphone and rechecked his surroundings before dialing the number. Gotti answered after one ring. Yep, it's me, Gravano said. You know the thing we've been talking about? The big thing? Yeah, the big thing. It's almost time to move. You say the word. I need you to chat it up with Bellotti a little bit. See if you can place the two of them together. We off Castellano, we gotta get rid of him too. Clean up the loose ends. Uh, you gonna make me go talk it up with this prick? Sammy, who's gonna be Johnny's big underboss? Um, me, Gravano said. Who's it gonna be? Sammy, said Gravano. That's right. So you help Johnny out, will you? All right, all right, Gravano said. I'll think of something. Nine. Saul had gone again without telling her what he was up to, and now she had to sit here worrying about him. Suppose more of those nasty gangsters were out looking for him. Suppose those were gangsters driving past her house right now. How could he keep doing this to his poor old mother? She sat at the table and peered out the window, waiting. Next time Saul went out, she'd find out just where he was off to. Edna resolved to keep herself busy until Saul came home. When she was done playing with her Ginsu knife, she turned to a jar of gefilte fish she'd spotted looming high on the top shelf of the pantry. She wanted to get it down and surprise Saul with gefilte fish and fresh grated horseradish when he returned home. Saul had always loved gefilte fish. Or was it his brother who loved gefilte fish? She was pretty sure it was Saul, wasn't it? How long had it been up there, anyway? She didn't remember buying it. Would it still be good? How long did gefilte fish stay good? Pretty much forever, she thought. It's preserved in that jelly. Didn't they find one of the ancient pharaohs buried with gefilte fish in his tomb? Well, she was pretty sure they did. And it was still good. Even after thousands of years. Wasn't that something? Just then, something on the television grabbed her attention. A breaking news story. A grisly discovery in Morris County, New Jersey. A hiker this evening came across the dismembered remains of two men in the Great Swamp. The victims, as yet unidentified, are suspected by police to be gangland murders. Stay tuned for developments as they come in. Gewilt, she said. 10. Gravano and Gotti were sitting at the diner the following morning, watching the latest developments of the great swamp story on the little television hanging over the breakfast bar. You, uh, you think it's eyeballs, guys? Gotti asked. Edelbaum couldn't dismember a Cornish hen. No fucking way. 
For 60 grand, you never know, Gotti said. People do crazy shit when money's at stake. There's just no way this guy could have taken those two out himself. Well, let me tell you something, Sammy. I knew this guy once. Little guy. Gambling man. Not like Edelbaum. You'd swear he couldn't hurt a fucking bug. Anyways, him and these other bozos are drinking pretty heavy one night. Don't ask me how it came up, but some guy bets him he can't beat up an ostrich. So's Fritz. That's the guy's name, understand? He says that's bullshit. He can beat the shit out of an ostrich. The other guys ask him if he wants to make it interesting. Fritz says, yeah. He bets a thousand bucks he can kick the ass of an ostrich. So listen, it's like two o'clock in the morning, and one of them knows how to break into the Bronx Zoo. And there they are. And Fritz is climbing in the ostrich cage, drunk as a skunk coke to the gills, and it turns out the guy knows some ostrich karate shit. He's running around the thing and he's kicking it in the ass. The ostrich doesn't know what the fuck's going on. So just when he thinks he's spent a thousand, here comes another ostrich. And now it's two against one. So the other ostrich turns around and now they're pecking him in the forehead, in the ass, and his fucking balls. They pecked the shit out of him. The other guys left him there in the cage. There was nothing they could do. And that's what happened. Gotti sipped his coffee and lit another cigarette. I don't get it, Gravano said. Hmm, what do you mean? I mean, it's a good story, but what's it have to do with Edelbaum? Well, I'm just saying money makes a man do strange shit. He dragged on his cigarette. Hey, what is it anyway with you and Boyd's all the time? Gravano asked. Gotti raised an eyebrow. With me and what? You know... Every story you got, it's always about that shit. Gotti waved away the waitress and her coffee pot. Nah, nah, nah. What's with you and what all the time? What was that word you said? A little grin formed on his face. Boyd's. Boyd's. That's what I thought you said. What the fuck is a Boyd? Boyd's, you know, fucking birds. <laughs> what the fuck are you? Alka fucking pone? Birds, all right. Birds is what I meant to say. <laughs> oh, that is precious. Oh, wait till the Chico gets a load of this shit. Boyd's, he says. <laughs> oh, you fucking asshole. Eleven. Saul sat at the kitchen table eating a pastrami and mustard. Mom had gone to bed. He'd promised her he would stay home tonight, but he had an itch no pastrami sandwich in the world could scratch. The sun had gone down, pulling with it the little trigger in Saul's head, the one that sent an impulsive bullet careening off the walls of his skull. He wanted badly to go out and slap down a bed. Any bed. There were plenty of reasons not to. Most of them were quite good. Besides losing the last of his money, there was always the chance he'd run into somebody he didn't want to. But the voice was loud and persistent. By ten, he'd convinced himself it was his lucky night after all. He'd be a fool not to take advantage of it. He put on his jacket and got in the car. He had $80 to his name. His entire bank account was in his pocket. This is so goddamn stupid, he thought. 
nodding at the doorman at the rear of the bar. It was unlikely he'd see any mob guys in the little speakeasy casino. They usually stuck to the more exclusive places, but not impossible either. So goddamn stupid. But maybe not. After all, this was Saul's lucky night. He could feel it. There were only five tables in the smoky little room. The blackjack and poker tables were full, and he'd never been a roulette man. A few of the lowlives and their shoddy broads shot craps. Bums. Saul wasn't here to party tonight. He was here to build up the bank. It was tough to see through the dim clouds of cigar smoke, but he didn't notice anyone around he owed money to. Good. And just as important, there was no one at his table to get in the way of his lucky vibes. He sat down at the Baccarat table and threw five bucks on bank. The dealer nodded and put down his cigar and started shuffling the cards. Haven't I seen you here before? He said. A few times, said Saul. Feeling lucky tonight? More than lucky, Saul said. I've got a system. Oh, everyone's got a system, the dealer said. They all say they do, said Saul. But they only say it. Then, they get tripped up and don't stick to it. You see, I stick to things. I am a stubborn son of a bitch. Not a gambler's a stubborn, the dealer said. Sometimes they confuse it with greediness. I'll show you the difference, Saul said. The dealer shuffled and cut and dealt the cards. Player got a seven of diamonds and Bank got a five of clubs. And the dealer swept away his five. No big deal. He was doubling down. His system was this. He had 80 bucks, enough to double down four times. And his pattern was this. Bank, player, player, bank. Why the pattern? We didn't know. He just knew. He put 10 on player. The dealer dealt bank a 10 and player a 3 and swept away his money. No big deal. He put 20 on player. The dealer dealt bank a four and player a king. He'd won a hand. The dealer pushed him 40 bucks. He was up five bucks now. Time to start the pattern over. Five on bank. The dealer won. Ten on player. The dealer lost. Pushed him 20. He was up another five bucks. Five on bank. Lost. Ten on player. Lost. 20 on player. Lost. A bead of perspiration formed on his forehead. He could still only double down three times. But he was sticking to his system. He put 40 on bank. The dealer dealt bank a five and he felt his palms seeping sweat. Player got a four. Saul clapped his hands. Yes! The dealer pushed him 80 bucks. Saul had built his 80 up to 100 and the night was just beginning. To increase his ability to double down an additional time, he'd need to build his bank up to 155. Saul couldn't believe his luck. Sometime later, he had no idea how much later, he was absorbed in the game. That zen-like trance he craved. He had doubled his money, 200 bucks now and he'd only had to double down a fourth time once. Most of the time Saul had lost big were because he'd gotten greedy. 
So, with $200 in his pocket and all the self-control he could muster, he stood up from the table and called it quits. He couldn't help but be impressed with himself as he walked back out to the parking lot. Not only had he stuck to his game plan, he got up and walked away with his winnings. The night was cold and damp, and he looked forward to getting back home with more money than he'd left with for once. Maybe he could gamble responsibly after all. Maybe he really could do it for a living. I could do this shit for a living. Edelbaum, come on, let's go for a ride. Saul spun around. The man who said it was sitting in the back seat of a Lincoln town car, another man holding open the passenger door. Saul froze. Get in, the man added, removing his sunglasses. It was the last guy Saul wanted to see. It was Eyeball. Saul glanced up and down the street looking for a way out, but it was too late, and there was nobody around. Nobody to help, and nobody to report it if there happened to be an incident. He was out of options. Slippery Saul had no way to slip out this time. Mentally, he put on his sales hat. What is it? Saul said. I'm paid up. What's the problem? Your problem's with those two goons of yours, not me. Just get in, Eyeball said. Don't worry, I'm not mad. I just gotta talk to you, that's all. Review some terms and conditions. Can it wait till morning? Very funny, Eyeball said, turning his one working eye towards the passenger door. There was no getting out of it. God, keep this lucky streak going, Saul prayed silently. Reluctantly, he got in the car. No funny stuff, said Eyeball, and he felt something cold jab at the back of his neck. He didn't have to look to know what it was. They took him to an empty blockhouse in the dead part of town, the old meat plant. They walked him inside and planted him in an old wooden chair waiting in the middle of the room and commenced to duct tape his wrists to the arms of the chair. You're shaking, Eyeball said. It's not that cold, is it? I turn up the heat, but I guess someone forgot to pay the bill. Sound familiar? Look, Saul said. I'll even help you find the guys. I've got some connections downtown. We could, uh, we could put out the, the, the feelers for them. I've got some connections myself, Eyeball said. Funny you should mention it. I made a couple of calls this morning after I saw a certain news story. I told my buddy I just wanted to have a look at him, make sure it weren't nobody I knew. I told him, nah, there was nobody I knew. But I'm pretty sure you know how it turned out, don't you? All right, you win, said Saul. You want the money? I'll get you the money, anything you want. You'll never stop learning in a profession like mine, said Eyeball. Who knew a little prick like you could do a thing like that? Frankly, I'm impressed. And don't get me wrong, I don't care about those guys. What I care about is my $80,000. 80? 80? It was 60. And now it's 80. I guess you didn't check the price tag on Mike and Ralph. You break them, you buy them. 
Saul didn't know what to say. Don't feel bad. I'm a slow learner myself. Eyeball went on. From the shadows, he produced a baseball bat. But eventually, everyone's got to learn. That's why I brought along my learning stick. They began to circle the chair. The driver leaned in the corner, the moonlight shining on his expressionless rictus. Saul was unable to speak. Don't worry, Edelbaum, he went on. Here's one thing I learned a long time ago. Dead guys can't pay. So as I came up with the formula, when guys don't pay, I just beat them up so fucking bad they wish they was dead. You follow the logic? Please, Saul managed. Eyeball circled back to the front of the chair. Well, I'll never fault your politeness, Edelbaum. But politeness don't pay debts. It's time you learned that. Eyeball lifted the bat to his shoulder, and Saul held his breath and squeezed his eyes shut. In an instant, he seemed to remember where it all started. Trading baseball cards at school, shooting marbles, playing cards for nickels, watching grandma play bingo, poker with his buddies, quarter hands, betting on the races, scratch-offs, betting on the fights, Hold'em in Atlantic City, all-nighters at the blackjack table in Vegas, It just went on and on and on. And this is where it all had gotten him. He got the same rush from the losses that he got from the wins. It was all just a drug that made him feel alive. It was the same drug coursing through his veins right now. And then the room was filled with destruction An explosion and sudden burst of blinding light, followed by the staccato of automatic gunfire. Saul's captors dove and spun and danced out an old moving picture performance in the pulsing muzzle flashes. Spatters of red pocked the dancing men's shirts. Eyeball, open-mouthed with one hand to his chest and the other outstretched, appeared to serenade the driver whose body was trying to slide down the wall as the force of the bullets kept it pinned in place. He finally fell. An eyeball began to spin. He was in a high-speed pirouette. Then, the curtain fell. It was dark. Oi, my shoulder's killing me! Ma! His ears were ringing from the explosions. His mother shuffled forward, rubbing her shoulder. In her hand, she dragged a rifle by the barrel. I'm sorry to meddle, honey. I know you hate it when I meddle, but I saw you went out and I followed you. Then, I saw you get into that man's car. I won't let any of these men hurt my bubby. Never. He didn't have to ask where she got the gun. She'd gone into his father's stash of war memorabilia. The stuff he told Eyeball he'd sold. Oh, ma... I can't believe it. Are you all right, Bubby? She fiddled with the duct tape until she unraveled one hand, then Saul unwrapped the other. Should we cut them up again? You'll have to do the sawing, honey. My shoulder is all sore from shooting this thing all over the place, and it was so noisy. 
There's no time to bury anyone, Ma. You just killed a made guy. We gotta get out of here. We gotta get out of here right now. Twelve. Tom Bellotti finished inspecting his construction trailer for wires and sat down at his desk. The feds knew better than to try it, he thought, but he was so used to his routine. He still did it every morning. Better safe than in the slammer. Time for work. He put his feet up on the desk, uttered some incomprehensible swear with a tightness in his back and opened the paper. No sooner did he get through the first page than there was a knock on the door. What? He said. Gotti's guy, Sammy the Bull, came inside. Bellotti peeked at him over his paper. About eyeball, Gravano said. Bellotti folded his paper. We found them. Him and his driver. They were in the old meat plant. Dead? About twenty holes in each of them. What the fuck? My God! Who the fuck did it? I've been thinking it has something to do with this Jew he was collecting from. Edelbaum's the guy's name. Edelbaum? I seen the guy. He says he gave the money to those mix eyeballs sent around, right? Eyeball never saw the money. Or the mix, for that matter. No shit. So, what do you think? Well, who's the common denominator here? This fucking Edelbaum. Edelbaum? Guy's a fucking lightweight. He's harmless. Someone ought to make the guy a liverwurst sandwich or something. He's big enough to use a gun if you want to do. Melody scowled. So you're saying they dragged Edelbaum to the meat factory for a little encouragement, and they somehow pulled a gun out of his ass and shot him both 20 times? There's only one explanation for that. He's not working alone. What do you mean working? The guy's a degenerate. I don't know. Eyeball ain't stupid. He had the guy duct taped to the chair and everything. We get there, and Eyeball and his driver are smeared all over the room. And there's a chair with the duct tape hanging off. Jesus, who is this guy? Fucking Judini? Bellotti leaned back and grunted. He's got someone in his pocket. Someone good. Ah, has Paul know about this yet? Nah. They only found them a few hours ago. You want I should tell him? Not now, Bellotti said. He's too busy to deal with this gangster garbage right now. We got a dinner meeting at Sparks on Monday. Until then, I'm not bothering Paul with any small-time shit. Gravano nodded. He made a clear mental note. All right, so you want me to go deal with Edelbaum myself or what? Hold off on it. Let him think he's safe for now. I don't want to think about anything until Tuesday, capiche? Gravano crossed his arms. He nodded. All right? All right, Gravano said. Bellotti nodded. All right. Good. So, can I finish my goddamn paper now? Gravano nodded and turned to leave. Oh, and uh, Sammy? Gravano looked over his shoulder. Give the family my condolences. Gravano nodded. Oh, and uh, Sammy? He turned. Watch out for the fucking boids. <laughs> he chuckled. Gravano balled up his fists and went out. Sparks Steakhouse on Monday. The jerk-offs get it.
They had more pressing matters to think about than some degenerate Jew who defaulted on his loan. Even though this Adelbaum guy sounded like more trouble than Bilotti had made him out to be, it was like he had some kind of secret weapon or something. Eventually, he'd need to be dealt with. So, a Jew walks into a bar, he mused. Forty bullets later, a made guy and his goon are dead. In any case, when it came time to take the guy out, he thought he'd need to bring a lot more than a liverwurst sandwich. Thirteen. Finally, Saul was safe at home, sleeping like a good boy. But Edna still felt on edge. She'd taken to testing the bagel knife on random things around the house, just to see if it could cut them. She cut a length of conduit pipe, an old carpet remnant, an old plastic spatula, marveling at how sharp it was. Sawing through those men's vertebra hadn't seemed to dull a bit. This could become addicting, she thought, just cutting things in half for the fun of it. Now and again, slicing random things to bits, she saw headlights illuminating the kitchen window. She saw them now, and peeked outside to see a black sedan slow down by the driveway, then speed passed again. And after a few minutes, the car drove by in the other direction. Despite everything she'd done, it seemed Saul had opened a bottomless jar of pickles. The mobsters wouldn't stop until they had their money, she knew, and Saul would never have the money to give them. What would she have to do to protect him? Who would be showing up at the door next? She sat down and glared at the elusive gefilte fish on the top shelf. She folded her hands on the table, considering the jar like a wartime general. How do you get a jar off the top shelf? Edna got up on her chair and shuffled to the basement door. How do you get a jar off the top shelf? The answer was simple. You take down the whole shelf. 14. The big day had arrived for John Gotti. If this worked, he knew, he'd end up taking Castellano's place at the head of the operation. And when he did... He'd breathe new life into the hard-knuckle traditionship of the Gambino family. Castellano had turned it into some white-collar office job, and Gotti was sick of it. Why would you want to take all the gangsterism out of being a gangster? No pride. No tradition. It was a sign of weakness. And now, it was time for a new regime. Gotti and Gravano made their way into midtown Manhattan full of nicotine and adrenaline. The stakes were high. This was an unsanctioned hit. If things didn't go smoothly, Gotti's cover would be blown, and the retaliation would result in a full-on civil war within the Gambino family. There was no room for error. Both Castellano and Bellotti had to go, and they had to go down swiftly. Spark Steakhouse, 5 p.m., They saw the disguised assassins standing by, white coats and Russian hats. Two stood near the entrance, and two more down the block, in case Castellano and Bellotti tried making an escape. The streets were busting with Christmas shoppers. You see them? Gravano said. Whose idea was it to dress up like fucking Eskimos anyway? Gotti said. 
I thought that was your call, said Gravano. Hold on. Eskimos don't dress like that. They wear them other things. Why you gotta bust my balls? This is a stressful day for me. Those are them Russian hats, Gravano said. Ah, Russians, Eskimos, what's the fucking difference? You know, you'd think these cops would keep an eye out for Eskimos. It's no wonder these neighborhoods all go to shit. Lousy coppers, Gravano muttered. Gotti looked queerly at him. What was that? No good cops. What are they good for? No, that's not what you said. What did you say before? Um, coppers. <laughs> that's what I thought you fucking said. <laughs> what are you now, James fucking Cagney? <laughs> cops. Cops is what I meant. Riddle the Chico hears this shit. Oh man, you fucking asshole. I'll give you a fucking break, said Gravano. Slowly they made their way around the block. Classy broads all dolled up in their furs and hats, shopping bags dangling from their elbows, chilly doormen luring them into their stores. You know how hard it must be for an Eskimo to take a shit? Gravano said. What do you mean? Just think about how much shit they gotta take off to take a shit. Yeah, and you're freezing your fucking balls off, right? I bet that shit's frozen before it hits the ground. And how the fuck are you supposed to wipe your ass with those fucking flamingo mittens? Gravano raised an eyebrow. Flamingo mittens? There's no fucking flamingos in igloo land. Sure there are. What are those fucking birds called? Oh, like a fucking penguin? Fucking penguins, yeah. Those fucking birds. Why you gotta bust my balls? This is a big day for me. Hold on. They make mittens out of fucking penguins? Well, not actual mittens. They just stick their hands in the penguin's ass. Get the fuck out of here. Nah, seriously. I saw it in one of those fucking nature shows. Seriously. Why you gotta bust my balls? How the fuck are you supposed to hold on to anything with fucking penguins on your hands? You, uh, work the beak with your fucking finger. You know how far you have to shove your hand up a penguin's ass to work the fucking beak with your finger? Yeah, up the fucking beak, what do you think? Gravano thought about that. They circled around and stopped at the light, just half a block away from Spark's Steakhouse, where Paul Castellano would soon be arriving for his dinner meeting. Wait a minute, hold on. So how are you supposed to jerk off with fucking penguins on your hands? Don't be a fucking moron, what do you think? They considered it for a moment. You, um... Probably just get another fucking penguin. Well, that makes sense. Wait, what? Yeah, you, uh, you fucked the penguin. Remember, there's fucking penguins everywhere. What? There's no broads there? Have you seen them Eskimo broads? Believe me, I'd rather fuck a penguin. I've never seen an Eskimo broad. You've seen a penguin, right? Yeah, I've seen a penguin. So? You wouldn't fuck a penguin? If you had to? Fuck no. I mean, probably not. Neither would I, I'm just saying. How about a flamingo? You'd fuck a flamingo? They're the pink ones, right? Yeah, those ones. Fuck no. Will you? No fucking way. I'd rather fuck a pigeon. Oh, oh, there he is. Castellano's car was stopped in front of the pavilion. Gravano stopped just across the street. Gotti rubbed his hands together. Here it is. 
it's going down. It happened in a flash. The holiday cheer dashed to pieces. Two gunmen materialized around the car, and the streets exploded in lunatic gunfire and terrified holiday shoppers. Gotti was enraptured, imagining his new future taking shape in the chaos, like a nuclear reaction fusing together some wonderful new compound. The birth of a new regime. But all at once, the gunfire ceased. What's going on? Gotti said. What happened? He pressed his face up against the window. When enough of the pedestrians had scattered, he saw one of the gunmen squatted down, struggling with the slide on his pistol. He's jammed, said Gotti. These mamalukes get hair gel in the frickin' shells? Fuck. Cravano rolled out the door and loped towards the nearest car, staying low. Castellano got out of the limo with a gun leveled, not a scratch on him. He fired twice sending bullets careening off the asphalt. Another shot sent the Russian hat exploding in a cloud of fur. The man dropped his jammed weapon and scrammed. Castellano fired two more shots after him. It was a complete failure. The gunman had missed every shot. You don't think I know what time it is? yelled Castellano. Tell Gotti I got his number! Gravano rose from behind a Buick his barrel perfectly trained on the marked boss. Hey, Paul, he said. Castellano turned to see him, his eyes wide as saucers. Hope you've been fitted for your wooden kimono. Gravano squeezed the trigger. Click, click, click. He saw Castellano's grin through an empty chamber of the magazine. He thought the revolver had felt a little light when he pulled it out of his jacket. He'd forgotten to load it. Wooden kimono? What an asshole! Castellano pointed his own gun, a devilish grin stretched across his face. As John Gotti watched slack-jawed from the back seat of his car, an old lady stepped out behind Gravano, awkwardly small and delicate behind the drum of the gun she held at her hip. A Thompson machine gun with a high-capacity drum... Castellano's grin slid from his face. You'll never hurt my bubbler, she said. Gravano dove away just in time. Edna opened fire, peppering Paul Castellano with 50 caliber dum-dum bullets. He seemed to dance there in the street, compelled into strange poses and attitudes. Glass shattered near and far as stray bullets connected with cars, apartment windows, street signs, and buildings. His driver, still hiding behind the wheel, caught one in the chest with a mouthful of safety glass for dessert. Gotti was behind the wheel now. Gravano sprinted back to the car, swearing, and they took off. He had barely enough time to read the license plate of the Buick the Saber with its door still hanging open. The car the old broad had come out of. Gotti hooted with excitement. Damn it. I don't know what just happened, Sammy, but I'll be dipped in shit if God himself doesn't want to see John Gotti in charge. Jesus, said Gravano. I gotta get me one of those old street sweepers. You shoot your balls off, pal. You know, I could have sworn this thing was loaded. The paper's gonna be priceless tomorrow morning, Sammy. Front fucking page.
15. The next morning, Saul woke to find a note from his mother that she was out grocery shopping. He scurried out to the curb and back to retrieve the newspaper. He scurried partly because of the cold and partly because of the ominous feeling that a hidden gun was always pointed at him these days. He shut the door behind him and went over to the kitchen table to sit down. He unfolded the paper and froze with his hands flat on the table. Oy vey, he said. December 17th, 1985. Yesterday, right in front of Sparks Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan, was perhaps the most significant murder in recent mafia history. Mob Kingpin, Paul Castellano, and close affiliate Thomas Bellotti were reputedly expecting to meet cohorts for dinner at the restaurant when several gunmen rushed their limousine and opened fire. As hordes of holiday shoppers ran for safety, each of the men were shot multiple times and left to die in the street. According to investigators, the shooters likely used Thompson machine guns, as all but several of the bullets were large caliber and residents reported hearing rapid gunfire. The nature of the blatant and public murder, police believe, signifies a notable change of leadership in the Gambino crime organization. No suspects have yet been apprehended. A notable change in leadership? Could he have lucked out? Could he be off the hook? Just then, a vehicle pulled in front of the house. It promptly stopped celebrating and crept up to the picture window and peeked out over the curtains. A Lincoln town car... Two men in suits got out of the car. Shit, he said. You've got to be kidding me. God, you wouldn't do this to me now, would you? Moments later, the doorbell rang. Maybe they were Jehovah's Witnesses, Saul thought. Yeah, just Jehovah's Witnesses wearing thousand-dollar suits. The Witnesses were doing very well these days, weren't they? He tiptoed to the door and looked out the peephole, hoping desperately to see a Bible. But all he saw were the backs of their jackets. The men were walking away. They got back in the town car, started the engine, and left. What the hell was going on here? They hadn't even waited for him to answer. Tentatively, he opened the door. There was a box sitting on the doorstep. He just looked at it for a while then tapped it with his foot. Not heavy. He leaned close to the box and listened for ticking. No, no ticking. After a while, he picked it up and brought it to the table and carefully opened the flaps and peeked inside. Fruit. A fruit basket. There was a note. Mrs. Edelbaum. All debts forgiven and forgotten. Best regards. John Gotti. P.S. Watch that kid of yours. He's a bit of a schlamozzle. You've been listening to Anything from My Bubbola by author Jeff Sturdivant. Anything from My Bubbola was written by and brought to you courtesy of Jeff Sturdivant. 
Jeff is a winner of the 2018 ABR Listener's Choice Award for Best Humor Entry for his audiobook production of Occupational Hazards, The Blue Collar Omnibus. He writes about the absurd, the macabre, and general strangeness of the human experience. When he isn't writing, he drives a brown truck and delivers packages. When he isn't doing that, he's usually getting into trouble. If you see him, do avoid him. But buy his books. They're good. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. 
Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hell on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.